the more avenues that are presented uh, for particularly for young people to educate themselves, the better off we're all going to be in the long run. It's a complex world out there. It seems to take forever. There is disappointment, which is natural. Resilience is about hope. Most of our ideas come from just listening. Ask a courageous question. It feels good to be able to do something positive for people. You are a force multiplier. Welcome to Watching Trees Grow, a podcast by Troutwood. I'm Gene Natali, co-founder and CEO of Troutwood. Uh, today's guest is a longtime acquaintance, and in the, the crazy small world, we'll share um, even some, some geography similarities that Greg McBride and I have. Greg is the chief financial analyst at Bankrate.com. He's a name that, that many of our followers will be familiar with. Greg has been on the front lines of the financial literacy conversation for at least as long as I have been involved in this space, and, and he can give his background better than I can. Greg, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you, Gene. Thanks so much for having me, and always great to connect with a, another native Pittsburgher. Oh, and I mean, my grandparents live very close to where you lived when you were in Pittsburgh. The crazy small world, for <laughs> sure, because both are small towns. <laughs> well, and Greg, is it a um, you've 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 moved out of Pittsburgh? into a warmer climate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my family moved to Florida when I was in high school. Um, so I, I wasn't going to buck that, that's for sure. But uh, you can, as the old saying goes, you can take the boy out of Pittsburgh, but you can't take the Pittsburgh out of the boy. So still a diehard uh, Steelers and Penguins fan. And, uh, you know, Pittsburgh remains very close to the heart, of, uh, for sure. We're going to dive into your, your history, kind of your passion for the space. But our audience is primarily students and educators, and I want to come right out of the gate with a question for that audience. With your expertise and experience, Greg, what is the one thing that you'd want that student audience to take away from our conversation today? The importance of forming good financial habits early and specifically getting in the habit of saving money on a consistent basis. Successful saving is all about the habit. If you could form that habit when you're young and your earnings are low, it will stick with you for years to come as your earnings grow. I've seen far too many people that think, oh, I'll figure saving out later. I'll figure it out later. Well, guess what? It's not a switch that you just flip when your salary crosses a certain threshold or when you reach a certain age, you're just going to flip the switch and all of a sudden become a good saver. Um, you know, if there's one thing that I've found in my career that's really indicative of financial security, it's the ability to save money consistently. So the sooner you form that habit, the better. Can I ask a follow on Greg and what, what ways should students think of saving? If you, if you, we go back in time and let's say you and I are talking in like the high school classroom right now in between periods. Yeah. I mean, I think this really starts with that, that first job, uh, you get that first paycheck and it's uh, yeah, it's a new feeling and you know, it's probably more money than you've ever had in your uh, bank account at any one point in time. And so, yeah, there's a tendency to kind of go out and, you know, just let loose and buy all the stuff you, you, you couldn't buy before. Uh, and, and, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with sort of the occasional splurge, but the, the habit is having a direct deposit from that paycheck into a dedicated savings account, automating that right from the get-go. That way the savings happens first. And so whether you're in high school and you don't have much in the way of obligations and the bulk of that paycheck is yours to spend as you wish, you still want the savings to happen first. And you know, I mentioned earlier about if you can form that habit when you're young and your earnings are low, it'll stick with you through life as your earnings grow. That's really important because as life, as you go through life, your obligations will grow. And that's why it's so difficult for people to just flip a switch later on uh, and start saving uh, at a certain age or a certain income threshold. Set up that direct deposit from your paycheck into a dedicated savings account and, and, and get into the mentality that the, the, the savings is for emergencies. It's for your future self. And uh, you're, you're going to force yourself to live on less than you make because you're doing the saving first. Mm -hmm. to, to our educators listening in, that's a great point to just pause this episode and talk with your respective classrooms. How can they automate those paychecks right now? Start that habit. Greg, let's, uh, we intentionally started with that question and, and you and I had prepared for this. We had some questions in advance, but when we let our community know that we'd be talking with you, 
students sent us a great deal of questions. So we've kind of gone back to the, the blank canvas and have some really great student questions. But I, I don't I want to give credit to your background too. So before we dive into the student questions, how did you get on this path to financial literacy? Was there a point in your own life where you said, This is this is it for me? I, I wanna I wanna be an impact, have an impact in this arena? I, I don't know that there was one particular moment. I've always been interested in money and saving and investing. Um, some of that comes from my dad, um, who just, he was a school teacher, but he was a good saver and he invested and, and things like that. And so as a kid, he was sort of trying to impart those that wisdom and good habits on me uh, and it worked. Uh, so I've always had an interest in it, even be long before I knew a career path or even really that finance was a, a vocation, you know, an area, a career path. Um, but then, you know, going through college, it was clear that that's the curriculum. That's what I wanted to learn. Uh, and I, that's the path I wanted to follow. And uh, just, you know, really from the beginning of, of my career, I worked in lending for a few years and yeah, that's, more of a sales job in the sense that, uh, you know, my job is to get them to take the loan. Right. And my passion was more on the other side of that, of you know, looking at someone's situation and saying, you know, the last thing you need to take is another loan. What you really need to do is this, this, and this. And so, um, when I joined Bankrate, my, my current employer, uh, it was right around the time that the company was transitioning from a publisher of industry newsletters to a personal finance website for consumers. And so it was a company I'd long been uh, aware of because it was headquartered and founded, you know, in my backyard. But um, that transition to a personal finance website designed to help consumers make informed financial decisions. When I landed there and that was the transition they were going through, I knew I'd found my calling. And, and in the years since, um, you know, not only is that continue all these years later, I've been with Bankrate for 23 years, but, uh, you know, not only does that mission remain foremost at Bankrate, but, you know, outside of my day job, I've devoted time to a couple of nonprofit causes that are also uh, in the financial education and literacy arena. Um, uh, one of the, the largest nonprofit credit counseling agency, I'm on their board, um, and their mantra is improving lives through financial education. Uh, I've also done some some work through a foundation out in California that uh, is, is focused on financial education. Uh, and so they take um, uh, class action lawsuit uh, proceeds that are uh, awarded uh, and, and they have to do, devise how they're going to split that up and give that money out to different financial literacy causes. And I've been on the funding board for them for a number of times, a number of different funding rounds over the years. And so that's always very rewarding to see money being dedicated to specific causes that are geared uh, to helping people in the financial education arena. You, Greg, you and I met because of Bankrate. I had been using your tools and examples uh, in the classrooms and seeing just really great student response. And you, you were then kind enough uh, to write uh, a very nice testimonial for the original missing semester, which I greatly appreciate. Do you have a favorite Bankrate tool? Well, the one that I think is almost universally applicable, and and I'm look, I'm going to beat this drum a couple of times during our talk, I'm sure, but the everybody needs an emergency savings account, uh, and so although Bankrate has a wealth of content uh, and tools and calculators that cover the spectrum of of personal finance, we all need an emergency savings account, and the one tool we have that I think every household in America needs to use is we publish a list of the top yielding federally insured savings accounts that are available in all 50 states. So it doesn't matter whether you live in Pittsburgh, whether you live in Florida, or whether you live in Wyoming, we publish a list on our site that of, of the top building savings accounts that are available to you. Uh, that's the one that I think is everybody needs to utilize because everybody needs that emergency savings account. And earning a competitive return on that money is, is absolutely critical, particularly when inflation is on the rise over time. You don't want to lose too much of your buying power to inflation. We will track that link down and include it. I, I'm actually going to message um, Rachel and Kristen and see if they can track that down right now, Greg, so we can throw it on the screen. Uh, has that, uh, we are going to get to our student questions, but when you set the table for a list of top yield savings accounts, I do have to ask your opinion on interest rates. 
Are we at the beginning of a new paradigm where for 50 years we've seen interest rates drop and now this class of 2022 is going to be the first to, to enter a new world? I don't think that it's going to be um, the reverse of what we've seen the last 40 years, for example, where inflation and interest rates have trended consistently lower. Yes, inflation is at a 40-year high right now, and I'm not so optimistic that it's just going to go away quietly. I think it's going to take a lot of action from the Federal Reserve, for example, uh, not to get too wonky, but you know, I, I think that there's a lot of work to come on that part to get inflation tamed. The supply chain itself is going to have to be healed. But but in the end, and listen, we may end up having to go through another recession between here and there. But I think by the time we get to the middle of the decade or so, demographics are going to reassert themselves. We have an aging population. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of disinflationary uh, forces involved with the aging population. And I think that those demographics will once again take hold and we're likely to be back into the slow growth, low inflation, uh, even really sort of middling productivity type workforce uh, that we had been coming into the pandemic. I appreciate that. You know, what, one of the questions we talk a lot, so I teach at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, mostly seniors, Greg, but I do get underclassmen and some of their questions are going to be the ones that I'm going to be be sharing with you here. If I'll start with a question that has come up in the classroom, but that wasn't submitted for today's episode. If I have variable student loans, what should my level of anxiety be as I, I see kind of some of the headlines around interest rates rising? And I don't even necessarily know what that means, Greg. I'm just... By me, I'm putting myself in that student's shoes, but I feel nervous when I see the headlines. And I think it's very prudent to be aware of this on the front end. Um, and so variable rate does mean that you are going to be susceptible to higher interest rates. Um, however, you're looking at this at the right time in the cycle before interest rates start to rise. The good news is interest rates are going to rise. Um, they're not suddenly going to, you're not going to wake up uh, one day next month and interest rates are a lot higher, it's going to be a process over time as they work their way higher. I think ultimately what you'd like to do is you want to maybe consolidate debt, uh, go from that variable rate into a fixed rate. That will insulate you from the budget pressure that comes with interest rates going up and up and up and your payments going up and up and up. Again, it's not going to happen overnight. You don't have to panic, but I think that in terms of the vision of where you want to be, you don't want to be holding variable rate debt in a rising interest rate environment. So I think this is absolutely the appropriate time to be thinking about that. And the course you want to follow is you know, eventually consolidate that into fixed rate debt before rates move up too much uh, so that you can lock in your, your interest costs and put yourself on the path toward repayment. Does Bankrate offer any tools if, if, if students go to the website where they can find places to go to consolidate those student loans? Yeah, we one of the areas we do have, uh, we have uh, free search engines for really every uh, banking uh, and financial product uh, that you can imagine where we do the comparison shopping for you or we match you up with lenders uh, that, that offer competitive uh, programs uh, per your specifications. And so student loans is, is one of those. Uh, if you come to the bankrate.com site, we do have a tool where you can go through the, 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 the process of finding the most competitively priced loans. They are going to be private student loans. So you sort of want to weigh the, mm -hmm. do I want to switch from federal to private? There's a lot of protections on federal student loans that don't apply to private student loans. So don't make that switch lightly. But if you're just looking at it from an interest rate perspective, um, you know, it, it does pay to shop around and, and see what else is out there. Uh, and if you're able to get a lower rate, if you're able to insulate yourself from rising rates, you know, that's certainly a consideration. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push to Rachel and Kristen behind the scenes and have them find that link also. Greg, that is just a very common question, but you're not surprised hearing that. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, and, and especially as we're coming up closer on May when the federal moratorium on, on student loan repayment and, and, and interest accrual is slated to come to an end. More and more anxiety I'm hearing from younger uh, folks, recent graduates uh, about the fact that, oh, no, these payments are going to kick back in again. What do I do? Greg, I just finished a series of one-on-ones with 25 college students where we were helping them build their first plan. And they're 20, all 100, all 25 had student loan debt in an observation that I kind of found interesting because it was the first time I experienced it. 
it wasn't the amount of the student loans that made them anxious. It was just having them. It was arbitrary, the dollar amount. Yes, I have seen that same thing. And and on the one hand, I think that in some sense, I see that as good Be in the sense that it's those that don't have a care about whether or not they're borrowing and how much they're borrowing and what degree they're getting and what type of earning potential do they have. Those are the ones that end up in trouble. Um, I, 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 you know, I've known young people that are in college or recently graduated from college and they worked two jobs. They figured out how to pay for it. They, they, even in situations where maybe their parents weren't able to contribute, they were able to seek out grants and scholarships and work study programs and, and, and really minimize uh, their out of pocket. And then, yeah, they have to borrow at some point. But I mean, like literally I saw somebody who had to borrow his senior year, $5,000. Um, and I said, look, you're getting an accounting degree. Okay. You're going to make that 5,000 bucks back within a couple of paychecks. I mean, go ahead and borrow the money. It's $5,000. You're, you're going to have a very marketable degree. You've got a tremendous uh, pathway of earnings potential ahead of you. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and so again, I think it's really just important to calibrate that with what your, your earnings potential is down the road. Um, student loan debt is good debt in moderation. Um, you know, when you, when you start layering on the debt and there's not a, a marketable degree or, or, or one that, that really presents uh, the potential to earn enough to pay that money back. I think that's where you end up in problems. But in my experience, those that have the, the anxiety um, about borrowing money are least likely to get in over their heads. Uh, I, I commend you for saying the good debt comment there, Greg. That's um, yeah, that's, that's a big deal. I mean, the math works out really simple. I mean, uh, the average student loan uh, debt among uh, undergrads is $31,000. And with a college degree, college graduates make more than a million dollars more over the course of a lifetime yeah. than uh, you know, a, a, a non-college graduate. Um, you don't have to be a college graduate to figure out that that's a pretty good return on investment. Borrow $30,000 to get an additional million dollars plus in lifetime earnings. Greg, do you believe that's sustainable? Yeah, um, it's sustained for um, you know, it's sustained for generations. I think if anything, it's grown in a knowledge-based mm -hmm. economy. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so I, I think yes, I do think it's sustainable. Again, I'll kind of go back to the you know you've got to calibrate the amount you borrow with uh, the ability to pay that back, an earnings stream that lets you pay that back, but. You know, keeping that debt in moderation to accomplish this goal that not only leads to higher earnings, but Gene, it leads to much higher levels of employability. Uh, even when the economy is at its worst, when you look at the yeah. unemployment rate for different segments of workers, it's lowest for college graduates. Whether the economy's good or the economy's bad, the unemployment rate is lowest for college graduates. So it's not just earning more. It's the ability to even earn a living is much higher with that uh, education. Gosh, I appreciate that. What, what about the ba what the, the balance between knowledge and the degree? Because because you know, we we talk you, you mentioned the emergency. Everyone needs an emergency fund. Fact, you need an emergency fund, and you need it before the emergency. Human capital, you know, making yourself you know harder to to fire in tough times when companies are downsizing through your education, uh, and I and I, I you've you've striked my curiosity here because a number of college professors who I interact with are fearful that the college model is going to change, that this past two years of the teaching virtual, uh, so I, that's why I, you, you've got me curious here. Yeah, I mean, with regard to the the college model changing, I, I think that's a very legitimate concern. I, you know, one of the guys I've worked with on some of the nonprofit work is a professor at Cal Berkeley, and uh, you know, he told me several years ago that it was all going the way of online classes. Greg, it's going online classes. The current model is just not going to last. And this was several years ago. This was long before any of us heard of, of uh, COVID nineteen. So, 
yeah, I think that in a lot of ways, the, the pandemic has accelerated trends that were underway in our society. It's kind of pushed us past, down the path several years uh, in a very short period of time. And you know, so, yeah, I think that's, that's certainly one of them. You'd asked about sort of calibrating the borrowing and the earning power. And you know, I think one, I'm not a big fan of rules of thumb, but here's one that I do think is a good one. Uh, and that is limiting your borrowing to or calibrating the amount you borrow to your first year salary. Uh, or expected first-year salary in that particular field. Um, again, the average undergrad student loan debt is $31,000. And there are a lot of degrees you can get where you can expect to earn more than $31,000 your first year out of school. So I think for the majority of, of, of undergrad borrowers, that's the, you know, that's the case. Um, the other thing is two-thirds of all outstanding student loan debt is graduate student debt. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, one of the things I've seen over time is that, you know, yes, the student loan debt is growing and growing and growing, but it's growing the most among grad students. There's a lot of doctors and lawyers out there that carry six figures of debt, some cases, seven figures of debt. Um, that's really pulling a lot of those, those averages up and, and, and growing the tally, um, from an undergrad perspective, keeping that debt modest and in line with what you expect uh, to earn in your field of choice that first year out of school. I think that's a, a good bar. I hadn't heard that statistic before on the two thirds. It, it, it doesn't surprise me. My, my med students are the ones who tend to have that quarter million dollars year after year, Greg. Um, and, and again, that's another one where it's calibrated to potential earnings down the road. They may not earn that the first year, but they're, that's a degree program. That's a career choice, a pathway where there is the potential to have the higher level of earnings necessary to not only repay that debt, but, but you know, uh, enjoy the fruits of their, of their labor and their sacrifice. Well, Greg, I have about, I, I, we, we, I parsed down the questions that came in from students to, to roughly 12 to 15 here that are all within your, your realm here. And I'm really interested to dive into them. These are coming from high school and college students, just to put context around the question. And I'm going to just read them verbatim. Does Greg have any advice on opening my first credit card? Uh, yeah, um, a couple of ways to, to, to do this. Um, you can get started by being added as an authorized user on your parents' credit card, for example. Um, I'd only do that if mom or dad or, or whoever is, um, is, is, you know, good with money is, and has not had issues with debt um, because piggybacking on their good financial habits, their good credit score is going to get you off to a, a good start. Um, that's one avenue, but it's not universally a, a great idea. Um, and, and so another avenue is many student credit cards. Um, they are, are, are geared for students. So the underwriting isn't so much about what do you do for a living and how much money do you make? Um, it's, they're given out with lower credit limits. Uh, the idea is to sort of get people used to, to, you know, involvement with uh, financial products and specifically credit cards. Uh, and most of them have no annual fee. So focus on a no annual fee card. Um, if let's say you got off to a rough start from a credit perspective. Maybe you had a credit card before and it didn't go so well or another obligation and it didn't go so well. You're not shut out entirely. You can look at what are called secured credit cards. And this is one where you make a deposit equal to the credit line that the lender then gives you. It's not going to be a big credit line, but it's going to be enough that you can start to reestablish that good credit. Make a small charge or two every month pay it off in full at the end of the month, establish that habit. Again, another one of those good financial habits you want to carry through life. Uh, but there's a few different avenues where I think you can get started or, or get restarted in the realm of, of building credit through credit cards. Well, you, you've led nicely into the second question. Greg, is there a best first credit card for a student? And I'm going to add on to that, Greg. Can I go to bankrate.com to look for one? 
Uh, to answer the second part of that, yes, you can go to bankrate.com. We do have, I mean, regardless of what type of card you're looking for, if you're looking for student cards, if you're looking for secured cards, uh, or, you know, maybe maybe you're, you're, you're pretty savvy and you're looking for something that gives you cash back or lets you uh, earn airline miles or something like that. We have lists for, for all of those. So depending upon what your, your pursuits are there. Um, so uh, I forgot the first part of the, uh, the, the, the question on that, but, but, you know, again, the good first credit card. Uh, I don't know that there's a one size fits all answer here. I will say the one attribute that will apply across the board, no annual fee. Get a card that has no annual fee and get a card that is from one of the major issuers that reports to the credit bureaus so that you can go and, and establish that process of building credit. And, and then just the, as far as habits, I mentioned this a moment ago, but make a small purchase or two every month, then pay the balance in full. Small purchase or two every month, pay the balance in full. You do not have to carry debt on a high interest rate credit card in order to build credit. You can build credit just fine by making a purchase or two every month and paying it off in full. Boy, that, that, I wish we could make fireworks just come up off the screen right now. Uh, I'll repeat that small purchase every every uh, small purchase or two every month, paid in full, paid in full. Greg, for the student who heard you say no annual fee, didn't know what that meant and then missed that second part, what does it mean? When you say no annual fee, do I have to pay to own a credit card? Um, just help us help that student understand that statement. Yeah, there are a variety of different credit cards in the marketplace and you know, many of them are geared for different types of, of, of consumers. Um, some, many will carry an annual fee and that's what that is. It's a fee charged to you every year just for the luxury of having that card. Um, and it, certainly starting out, you wanna avoid anything that's got an annual fee uh, I think I was probably into my 30s before I had a card with an annual fee, um, and 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 even then, there, you know, there there are cards with annual fees where the annual fee actually more than pays for itself. But that's for down the road. I mean, that those are instances where you know people are traveling a lot um, and they're you know, racking up a lot of expenses, and um, you know they use that that card uh, for a lot and they put a high volume of, of spending on the card and rack up a lot of points and rewards or a lot of perks that may come with the card that more than compensates for the annual fee. You're probably 10 years or so away from that. So I would, in the meantime, just stick with uh, a no annual fee card. Plenty of them out there, um, you know, but that's, you know, really out of the gate. Avoid the annual fee and avoid the finance charges by paying the balance in full every month. Mm -hmm. And when can I use a credit card? How, how do I determine which small purchases are okay to use one and maybe one that I shouldn't use a credit card? Yeah, this is one of the things I think it's changed for the better in you know recent years is the ability to use credit cards for small purchases. It, when I started using credit cards, it wasn't that way. Um, I worked in a supermarket. We didn't take credit cards. Um, fast food places didn't take credit cards. And now they do. So maybe you're uh, you know, flying home for uh, the, uh, over spring break or something like that, and, and you, you, you need to you know, pick up a few toiletries or whatever, uh, going into the, the uh, convenience store or going into the, uh, the pharmacy to pick up a couple of uh, you know, tubes of toothpaste and deodorant and cologne and all that stuff, you know, just a, you know, small purchases. You can put that on the credit card. Um, you know, you you know, just grab, just grabbing a, a bite to eat, the cup of coffee, whatever the case may be. Great way to, you know, you can use that credit card for very small purchases and then pay it off in full at the end of the month. You can build credit very effectively in that manner. So not only do you not have to carry debt to build credit, you don't have to make big ticket purchases to do so either. And then our final question, the credit card kind of bucket here. I'm going to read the question, Greg, then I'm going to share personal story, because I think it will help with this question. But the, the question is, are there conditions that I should meet before I apply? So if I'm a student, I'm afraid of maybe getting turned down. Are there boxes I should check? And I'll date myself, Greg, like, like you just did. When I got my first credit card, I just had to write my name and I got a free Pittsburgh Pirates t-shirt <laughs> and a credit card. <laughs> uh, that's how it was back when I was in college. Um, things have changed for the better. Yeah, they have. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, and I, 
going back to what the original question was, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. What was the, uh, what was the original question? What conditions should I meet before I apply? I'm nervous of being turned out. Yeah. You know, I think, um, particularly if you're getting a student card to start with, the conditions are more of conditions about looking yourself in the mirror and using credit cards more so than what the, the issuer is looking at. Um, you know, if I go out and apply for a credit card, they're, they're going to look at my credit history. Uh, they're going to look at my, my payment history on other obligations. Uh, they're going to look at my income and my job stability. Uh, I've got a college student and he gets uh, these invitations for these student cards in the mail all the time. And so, you know, those are cards that they're not looking at necessarily a certain level of income or a credit history, especially when there isn't one. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's less, if you're going with a student credit card, if you don't have established credit, if you don't have much in the way of income, those aren't necessarily uh, factors that will get you turned down at that stage. Uh, it will at a later date, but on a student card, no. I think the conditions that you want to sort of gut check yourself on is look yourself in the mirror and say, why is it that I want this credit card? And, and if it's a matter of you're, use, you're looking for this credit card as a way to buy stuff that you otherwise couldn't pay for, then stay away because that's the makings of trouble. That's the makings of piling up credit card debt over time. If instead you're looking at this as a tool to build credit where you're going to be very disciplined about just making those one or two small purchases every month and paying it in full and not putting anything on that credit card that you couldn't afford to pay for uh, right now, uh, I think those are the conditions that you know give you the, the green light to go ahead. Greg, I, do you by chance have the statistics on if I apply for a student card, what my odds of getting accepted are? I do not. I mean, a lot of issuers play that stuff close to the vest. Um, so, but it's it's on student cards, it's high. It's much higher uh, than it is on a lot of other credit cards because they're they do a lot of that targeting on the front end. They're sending them out to to, to college students. Um, you know, they're they're sending them out to to young people that they feel have a good uh, represent a good risk and and are, have a good chance of getting approved. What about the pool on my credit score? Does a student card also have the same impact as if an application later in life? One of the and it's a very small factor, but it, this is one that people ask about and worry about. I think uh, more than than necessary. Uh, when you apply for credit, you apply for a loan or a credit card, that lender is going to pull your credit report and look at your, your credit history. Now, the application of credit and pulling of that credit report will pull down your credit score just a little bit. And so what's more important is the good habits you form by using that card that is going to have a much more positive impact than the uh, than the, the short-term impact of uh, a pull on, on your credit. So I would, it's fine to be aware of it. I wouldn't obsess on that. I'd, I'd look mm -hmm. beyond it and just, you know, you know, make sure that you're establishing those good habits, staying, you know, keeping your usage of credit low, always, always, always paying the balance in full together. Those two things constitute two thirds of your score. You know, recent credit inquiries, which is what it's called when they put your right, it's 10% of your score. Uh, it's just not something to worry about. Fear can paralyze so many of us when it comes to finance, fear of the unknown. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, fear, I think is, is an accurate description of the fear of doing the wrong thing. Um, and, and so, yes, that does paralyze people or it paralyzes people from making change and maybe getting out of a situation that is not to their benefit. Greg, we have a use case scenario that I'm curious to get your opinion on. Uh, a student emailed and said, Greg, I have two credit cards with outstanding debt of close to $6,000. Should I ignore the APR? Should I use the snowball method? Would you have any advice for you know, helping this situation out? This is a great question. These are the type of questions we field at Bankrate uh, all the time. Uh, and so just to kind of sort of uh, set the backdrop, you know, the the snowball, there's two different methods of debt repayment, uh, snowball or avalanche. Uh, and the snowball method, you start with the smallest balance obligation. You pay that off first and work your way up uh, from smallest balance to largest. The avalanche method 
starts on the basis of interest rate. You look at your highest interest rate obligation and you focus on paying that off first and then down to the next highest interest rate and so on. So from highest interest rate to lowest. Uh, and so to answer your question, um, if, if the balances are roughly equal on the cards, um, then I would go with the, the avalanche focusing on the highest APR card first, focus on paying that off first. Um, if there's a big difference in the balances on these cards, you know, you said $6,000 in total debt. If it's you know, 5,000 on one card and a thousand on the other, then yeah, absolutely. Go with that snowball method. Let's get that thousand dollar balance knocked out. That puts some wind in your sails, right? You got a win under your belt. And now you've, you, the payment that was going towards that card, you get to, you know, add that to the payment on, on the one card that's remaining and you can really accelerate the process of getting that debt paid down. So I think a lot of that really is just going to depend on how's that $6,000 divided up among those two credit cards. Greg, hearing your answers, I can't help but think, I, I, I think of the students that, that submitted these questions, and then I'm thinking of the ones that aren't submitting the questions and aren't participating in the conversation. They're the ones that need, they're the ones that are thirsty to hear this are going to go do it. How do we reach the ones that aren't even having the conversation? Yeah, uh, I know this is, uh, I, I, I look, I don't have an answer for that one, right? I mean, that's sort of been the sort of, <laughs> this is the, our life's work and, and yet, you know, it's, uh, you, you want to be able to get the message out to everybody. And yeah, the, it's the people that don't ask questions. It's the people that don't show up to the information sessions. Um, you know, those are the ones that need it the most. And, um, you know, I, I've always had, um, you know, great respect, respect and, and given much props to those that take the bull by the horns and say, I need to learn more about this. I need to educate myself uh, and, and expose myself to, to knowledge uh, on finances uh, because that's going to, that is, is, is going to keep you out of trouble. Um, ignoring it, putting your head in the sand is, is not going to be a, a solution. I, I think in some ways it kind of goes back to what we're talking about student loan debt, right? It's those that are most worried about borrowing the money and are focusing on borrowing as absolute little as possible they're least likely to get in trouble. It's those that don't have a care in the world and just rack up the debt and they'll figure it out later. That's the fertile ground for problems. But I don't have the statistics, but I imagine it's that second student that also adds the cost of living loan, maybe doesn't pay the credit card balance in full each month and compounds the problem. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, the educational costs are just one aspect of what it costs to get through those years, and, uh, and 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 yes, so a lot of times if you know if you're if you're borrowing on top of your educational costs for the cost of living, that just mushrooms the total bill at the end. Greg, if they're just uh, the credit cards are so they're, they're such a, a topic of concern. A very candid question: Is it a waste of my time to reach out to credit card companies and see if I can get a better deal somewhere else? <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, that might be one of the best usages of your time. Uh, a couple of things. Um, we have done studies in the past and, and found that uh, your odds of getting a better rate when you call up and ask your issuer for a better rate, or you say, hey, look, I got this other low rate offer in the mail. Um, you know, I, it, it, I, might, I might switch to that card. Can you match it instead? Um, that the odds of success are very, very high. Uh, and, uh, you know, the old saying, Wayne Gretzky, you miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Not asking is definitely not going to get you a lower rate that I can tell you. Um, the other thing is that bank rate. We, one of the tools we have is you can look for the lowest rate cards. Uh, if you're looking to transfer a balance from one card to another in order to reduce the interest rate, we have a list of balance transfer offers, low balance rate, below low rate balance transfer offers. Um, again, a lot of those probably more for those with established credit um, than those just starting out. But again, options that are out there, options to be aware of, uh, you know, as you work your way uh, down the pathway of uh, your financial journey. Let's bridge to the credit score, which at least in my experiences tends to follow or even be set in conjunction with the credit card questions. That's the first chance I have to repay debt as a, as a young adult or as a student. How does a college student get a credit score? Well, we, we talked about the, uh, you know, getting that student credit card or that first credit card and just putting the modest one or two purchases on every month and then paying the balance in full. That's your start right there. You don't have to go out and borrow a lot of money. 
you don't have to put a lot of uh, spending on, on the credit card. No, uh, just modest, disciplined usage and paying the balance in full will get you well on your way. Uh, a lot of that other forms of, of borrowing uh, that, that really sort of flesh out your credit score, that will come over time. Now, the time will come where you may need to borrow money to uh, buy a car or buy a house. Um, and so establishing those good habits now uh, are the good building blocks to, to put yourself in the position where you're able to rent that first apartment when uh, the landlord's going to check your credit, uh, you know, buy that first car. Um, and then eventually, uh, if, you're, if your goals and situation uh, line up, you, you want to buy a house, putting yourself in that position as well. Our money choices are so interlinked. Jumping back to our home state of Pennsylvania, Greg, only 15% of our students will still have the opportunity. Well, only 15% will have the opportunity of this kind of education, a personal finance class. Uh, and we all make we, people want homes. They want cars. They have to understand this stuff. Yeah, I know that's, you know, a, a passion you and I both share for sure. And, you know, I think that, you know, the more, avenues that are presented uh, for particularly for young people to educate themselves, the better off we're all going to be in the long run. I mean, I've lectured on, on college campuses before where they've had uh, personal finance type classes and they've always been oversubscribed. Uh, the demand is definitely there. Um, one of my kids is a senior in high school uh, this year and he's taking a personal finance class. It's an elective and it's one semester. We're going to do this for the rest of our life, and it's an elective of one semester. He's had three years of history, three years of science, but you know, personal finance and driver ed, the two things he's going to do for the next 70 years, those are electives, and they're one semester each. So yeah, I, I could preach about that all day. We don't get those years back. Uh, yeah. There's an opportunity cost that uh, I would actually, I'd be so aggressive as to say there's an economic opportunity cost for society by not teaching without a doubt yeah yeah i couldn't agree more you know there used to be this commercial uh when i was growing up in pittsburgh uh, that, that was about the preventative maintenance on your car and the tagline was well you can pay me now or you can pay me later and uh meaning that you know you can do the preventative maintenance on your car now or you can let it go and have a much bigger bill later i think that translates to so many things in life but one of them as it pertains to personal finances you can form those good habits now you can save that money now. You can stay away. You know, do all those little things you do now as preventative maintenance for bigger problems later. You can get that, that take that class in personal finance. You can read Gene's book, The Missing Semester. You know, all those little things you can do now that are an investment in your future and are going to help you avoid those bigger problems down the road. When students who might hear that push upstream, if your school's saying no, take ownership. Say, no, no, this is important to me and get your, your fellow students to rally around this because the, the, the consequences are different than a letter grade uh, with yeah. this subject. They're, they're far more painful if you aren't taught about a credit card to make a mistake or think that trading is the same as investing um, and, and, and lose that money. Greg, staying on the credit score, because this is a question that I get a lot and you are far more qualified to answer. College student, Greg, how do I build and maintain a credit score while I'm a student? You know, I'm going to go back to that credit card example where you get that student credit card. And yes, it's got a low credit limit, but you're just using it once or twice a month for a modest purchase and paying the balance in full. That's all you need. Um, you know, I, I never had anything more than a credit card until I was probably in my mid-20s. Um, and it was just doing that, modest purchases paid in full every month. Modest purchases, paid in full every month. Uh, and I worked in the credit arena at the time, so I knew what my credit score was. I knew what my credit report looked like. And trust me, uh, you know, the, the, the credit report was clean and the credit score was just as good as, as you know, people that were a good bit older than me and had uh, been borrowing money and, and paying it back on different types of loans for a long, long time. So don't think that just, you know, because it's one or two purchases and you're paying it in full every month that you're playing in the minor leagues. No, no, you are putting the building blocks in place uh, for uh, those later years when you do need to borrow more serious money. You know, now you've got the track record that shows that you can handle credit responsibly. Greg, let me push for the students who maybe are nervous about opening a credit card, you know, for either personal reasons, family reasons, just lack the confidence. Are there other other ways to answer that question? If I say, Greg, I hear you on the credit card. I'm just not doing it. I am not opening a credit card until I'm out of college and I have a full time job. 
and that is a very prudent choice. I mentioned the sort of the conditions and the sort of the gut check of, you know, hey, am I going to pay? Look, if you can't answer those questions, yes, stay away. Um, you know, this, you know, if, if, if you're worried that a credit card is going to represent temptation to spend money you don't have and dig yourself a hole that's going to take years to dig out of, stay away. You don't need to build credit at this point that bad that you're willing to put yourself in that type of position. You can use a debit card, a prepaid card. They won't build your credit, but they will keep you on the straight and narrow financially. And that is, that is more important. Uh, over time, forming those good financial habits, yeah, the good credit will come. But if you don't form those good habits early, you can dig yourself a hole financially and from a credit perspective that make it very difficult to dig out of. I appreciate that. Well, Greg, I'm going to jump to our fi final student question, just looking at the clock here, because you and I could, I think, continue this for not just hours, but probably days. <laughs> um, what is the balance between the, this debt side, the saving side, but also I do want to have a 401k. I want to have a Roth IRA. How, how do I bridge these two conversations? On one, I feel fear. I feel fear when I talk about my debt and my student loans. I feel a little bit of excitement when I see what's possible on the Roth IRA, the 401k, that savings that my, my teachers maybe presented. What's, do you have any advice on what the balance is? Yeah, I, I got to start by just saying that this is not an either or proposition. This is not like, oh, I'll pay off the debt first and then I'll start saving. No, you can and should be doing all of these at the same time. And, you know, the, you know, earlier I had talked about the importance of setting up direct deposit and getting in the habit of saving, having it automated so it happens without you having to think about it. That applies to putting money aside in your emergency savings. That applies to putting money away for retirement through a workplace 401k or an automatic bank transfer into an IRA to build your retirement savings. Automate it. Make that happen first. And then... You're, because you're saving right off the top, you're forcing yourself to live on less than you make. That's the really essence of building wealth there. So with that money that's left over, then you can channel your efforts toward debt repayment. So this is not either or. Too often I've seen people make the mistake of, I'll start saving as soon as I get my student loans paid off. And what happens? They're, you're losing valuable years of, of potential mm. compounding in that money. And worse, a lot of times people that say they'll start saving when they get out of debt, Five years goes by, 10 years goes by, they don't get out of debt, right? Because if it's not the student loans, then it's the credit cards, then it's the car loan because they had to have a new car. Uh, you know, it, it, it'll just, you, you've got to establish that habit of saving and do it early. You said it early on in the podcast, uh, save first, and we are creatures of habit, good, good and bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Too often people try to wait till the end of the month after all the bills are paid and then save what's left over. That doesn't work. Um, oftentimes, there's nothing left over. And even when there is, there's no consistency in that month to month. So that's why you got to flip it around. Pay yourself first. Um, Greg, if I want to open a Roth IRA, can I do so without taxable income? Or do I have to wait until I have taxable income? Yeah, you, you have to have earned income to be able to make a contribution to uh, an IRA. Now, maybe you worked a part-time job in the past and you had a 401k, you could roll that 401k over into an IRA, but you cannot contribute to an IRA unless you have earned income. That is income that you are claiming for tax purposes, income from a job that you are claiming for tax purposes. Does that earned income have to come in the year that I want to contribute to my Roth IRA or can historically earned income help me if I want to get started now? I'm thinking of that student who's really motivated, wants to open the Roth IRA, but has been focusing on classes, did have a summer job last year. Uh, yes, you can open it. You won't necessarily be able to uh, you know, get, a, get a tax benefit from making that retirement contribution if you don't have earned income this year. But you can certainly make the contribution and start that process of, of compounding. One of the real assists in, uh, in building retirement savings is that there are some tax advantages. Not only does the money grow on a tax advantage basis, but to get people to save, there are things like the retirement savers credit that uh, are geared for uh, particularly low and modest income households. It gives them a tax credit in, in, for saving for retirement. If you don't have earned income this year, you won't necessarily be able to get that credit, but you can still use that money you'd earned uh, and, and put aside uh, to, to fund that retirement account and at least keep that compounding going. Brilliant. Greg, you've, you've been in this for 
a lot of years bank rate since 1998. I've been with bank rate since 98. Yes. Is there a most memorable moment over that time? Kind of specific to our conversation here. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I've been fortunate enough to do over the years is uh, what we would call our, our money makeover series. And that's where, you know, I would look at somebody's overall financial situation and, and you know, advise them on here's what you need to do to kind of get back on the right path. Um, and then a year or two later, we, we sort of go back and we check in with them. Um, and so there's been a lot of, I think, gratification for me that's come out of seeing how people have succeeded uh, in that in that time since, but the ones that, that really stick out at me, um, one was a, a family in California, um, that they were in a mortgage. This is, you know, back at, you know, pre-housing bust, uh, they were in a mortgage that wasn't going to end well. And I said, get out of it now. Uh, and I told them, sort of advise them, here's what you got to do, blah, blah, blah. That's going to be a problem later. We checked in with them a year later and the guy's first comment was Greg saved our house. Um, you know, wow. so that, that, you wow. know, that felt good. Uh, and just another one was, um, you know, I was doing a money makeover for someone who worked in the nursing field. And um, I said, look, you've got this chunk of money here. Put that in emergency savings, build yourself a cushion. She's like, I really want to pay off my car loan. I said, trust me on this, put it in the emergency savings first, then we'll focus on paying off the car loan. Um, and she, you know, was, was a little reluctant, kind of pushing back like, well, I'm a nurse. I'm always going to make money. What do I have to have emergency savings for? And I'm just like, trust me on this. Um, I heard from her a year or so after the fact, and their community was devastated by wildfires um, at one point. And uh, not only were uh, did she have more people living in her house who had uh, had housing damage of, of their own from the wildfires, but the hospital where she worked was closed because of wildfire damage. So she had no income and a lot more mouths to feed. And uh, she said, you know, you were right. I'm glad I had that emergency savings because that's exactly what I relied on during that period of time. Well, and Greg, hearing you say that, you know, we, we took the small tension into the need for personal finance in the classrooms. And if we miss the high school classroom, we miss the chance to get many of the future nurses. You know, it's, it's once once you get into the college or the higher, it's extremely difficult to, um, I think, introduce a finance class in a a non business program. Just speaking to the academic arena in colleges, I won't go down that that rabbit hole. Uh, it is so imperative we reach that that kind of eighteen and under audience. What what a powerful story. Well, yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more. By the way, on just sort of the need for this universal uh, exposure to personal finance knowledge because that and breathing are one of the few two, a couple of the few <laughs> things that we all have in common. Uh, well, and uh, just the great work that bank has done. Great, Greg, this is an honor. It is a privilege having to have this conversation. I, like I said earlier, I was using bank rates tools, both personally and then professionally. And then, then we had the chance to meet. So thank you so much for making time to, to do this today. Oh, thanks so much, Gene. Thanks for having me. And again, it's an honor to work with you as well. And congrats on all the great work that you have done um, you know, through the missing semester, but you know, also all their other initiatives to, to help uh, the young people get that personal finance grounding that they all need. Uh, thank you, Greg. And to everyone listening, thank you for listening to Watching Trees Grow, a podcast by Troutwood.